Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Branch Church, and good morning to our Branch Church family online. A blessing to be with you all as we continue our worship through the hearing and the receiving of the Word of God, and by God's grace as we leave here, the doing of it. So years ago, I was at Parkway Plaza, which is in El Cajon, and I was at a store called C28. It was an abbreviated form for Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It was a Christian store, and the verse read this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Well, what kind of philosophy is he talking about? That which is according to man, that which is according to the basic or spiritual elemental things of this world, rather than according to Christ. Great verse, great mission. You've probably seen the not of the world, not of this world stickers. You remember those? Probably really faded if you see them now, because I believe the store does not exist anymore. <laughs> but it was great for a while. Anyway, I was in that store and I was in the back and I was talking to a, a girl. Wasn't flirting, nothing like that. We we're just talking. And somehow the conversation came up and she said she liked the Old Testament better than the New. And I was like, wow, like, it's not how I feel. She liked the Old Testament stories better. For me, I prefer the New Testament letters like Paul. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to say. Tell me what to think. I was kind of more of that mindset. For you, though, if you had to choose, which would you prefer? Would you prefer the scriptures that show you, or would you prefer the scriptures that tell you? Now, the news is good, and God is gracious. God gives us both. We have scriptures that both show us and tell us, and they're all important to the whole council of scripture. <laughs> When you look at the gospel writers, they're gonna have different emphasis on how they tell the story. So the gospel of Mark is much more showing you than it is telling you. It does both, but it concentrates and it succeeds well at showing you. Jesus immediately went here, he immediately did this. He does this and this, and he is showing you the authoritative action of Christ constantly in action where you walk away, you're like, man, way to go. John is much more focused on telling you. We've done a lot of telling in John, a little bit of showing, a lot of telling. Well, today, John is going to primarily focus on showing us. Last week, we had a lot of telling. We got to see Jesus as the son of God. This week, you get to watch it in action in the stories that we go through. Now, remember, John's focus, John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, we have seen the glory of the son of God. We have seen the glory of the one and only from the Father. So when he shows us, ultimately, that's what he is showing us, the glory of the one who has come from the Father. And you are to walk away going, I believe. How could I do anything else but believe? Specifically, when we get into the story of John chapter 6, we're going to read the first 21 verses. We are going to learn this, that Jesus exceeds our needs. Jesus exceeds our needs, and he transcends our human abilities to say it really, really simple, and we'll go and unpack it together. We learn this, that Jesus exceeds our needs and our abilities, and that's the type of savior that we need. So please turn with me to John chapter six, beginning in verse one. John chapter six, beginning in verse one. John writes, he says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. After this, what is this? It's chapter five. And you remember in chapter five, Jesus was in Southern Israel. He was in Jerusalem. 
and Jesus is going to heal a man who has broken legs. 38 years, Jesus speaks the word and the guy is whole, he's healed, he can walk again. And the first thing he gets is what? Dude, you're breaking the law. Put your mat down, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then he's, this guy told me to do it. And so they come after Jesus. What are you doing breaking the Sabbath? Jesus makes very clear that the same thing that justifies the father to work on the Sabbath is the very same truth that justifies Jesus to work on the Sabbath. And we learned last week that Jesus's work is God's work. So after all of this, we're now in Northern Israel. We're now way up north. We're by the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is traveling from the west side of the sea now to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. John puts a little side note. He calls it the Sea of Tiberias. Does it have two names? How are we to understand that? It's really simple. On the west side of the Sea of Galilee, there's a city called Tiberias. It was founded in AD 20 by Herod Antipas. He was one of the rulers. And later on in the century, that name becomes kind of associated with the whole lake. So just a historical note that John throws in there for us because he's writing here at the end of the century. Verse two, and a large crowd was following him. How large was it? Well, he doesn't tell us just yet. We're gonna have to wait and find out. Why were they following him? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This makes a lot of sense. Jesus comes and he's going to make people who are very broken whole. People find out and they come, I want to be healed too. I want a miracle for my body as well. If you go with me to Mark chapter six, verse 33, I'm going to add some more detail in. This story we're reading is a miracle that is the only miracle found in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this together. When they tell it, they will all have their different emphasis on what they're trying to get across. Mark is gonna add some detail, so I'm gonna throw him here a little bit, a little bit of Matthew, just to paint the picture a little more, but I'm gonna ultimately stay in John because I want you to get John's emphasis. Mark 6, 33, he says, "'Now many saw them going and recognized them, "'and they ran there on foot from all the towns "'and got there ahead of them.'" So these crowds, they know Jesus is healing. They see him leave in a boat, go across the lake. Ah, he's taken off. No more boats. What do they do? They start running around the side of the lake to try to beat him to the other side. And they actually do. They get over there before he does. Now go back with me to John chapter six, verse three. He says, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. So when Jesus is going to the other side of the lake, he is going there, it seems, for rest. He's trying to get away, a place of solitude with his disciples. And the fact that he's sitting seems to indicate that he's teaching them. Sitting is the authoritative position for teaching. Very different from today. I think of someone standing, delivering, very close to what I'm doing right now, but it was not that case here. Now, remember, we're going to have to combine these stories a little bit to get all the details together. But first, verse four. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John just slips that in there. Just a real quick verse. By the way, it's Passover time. Why is that significant? Passover is a time where nationalistic fervor is high. I'm proud to be an Israelite, where at least Yahweh delivers me. Right there, fired up. This is the time where they come all down to Jerusalem and they remember that God has delivered them from Egypt. 
He gave us the prophet and Moses. He led us out. He parted the sea. Our God rocks. He's awesome. And they're going to celebrate that. So this time period right now in which Jesus is about to do this miracle, people are probably a little passionate about being an Israelite. Maybe something akin to the 4th of July. We get together, maybe paint our faces, maybe. Wear red, white, and blue. Shoot off some firecrackers. We watch the hot dog eating contest and we have patriotic songs, a lot of country songs. And we're excited for about a half a day to be an American, or at least we used to be, right? <laughs> Verse five, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus looks at Philip. Why Philip? Well, Philip was from a neighbor town of Bethsaida. So he was from the closest town. If you were to ask someone else, maybe it might not make much sense, but Philip makes a lot of sense. If someone would know where to get food, it's going to be Philip. And so he asked Philip, from where are we to buy bread that the people may eat? Now go back with me to Mark 6. I want to add some detail into the story for you. Mark chapter 6, verse 33, from where we left off. Mark 6, 34. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So Mark has it like this. When Jesus got to the shore, the crowd was already there. John doesn't tell us that. Doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean John is wrong. There's a different emphasis on what they're going for. So we put them together. When they get across the lake, the crowd is already there. Jesus sees them and what does he feel? Compassion. Compassion or mercy is this wonderful attribute where you see someone in pain and you want to alleviate them from that pain. He looks at them. They're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have a leader. They don't have people, the leadership taking care of them. The story in Mark just before this one is the story of Herod. I think it's his birthday. He's throwing a party. And how do they celebrate? Taking care of the rich and they cut John the Baptist's head off. You have that kind of king doing that. And then now you have this king in a contrasting story right next to it in the middle of nowhere, seeing people and feeling sorry for them and wanting to take care of them. That's the difference between the kings of the earth and our king, Jesus Christ, who has come the next verse says, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So Mark has the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, where are we going to get food? Basically, John has Jesus coming to Philip and saying, where are we going to get food? So people read that and go, oh, Bible's in error. It's a contradiction. No, it's a difference of emphasis. You put them together, here's possibly what happened. Jesus is the one who initiates. That's John's emphasis. That's why John puts it on Jesus. So Jesus likely started the conversation. Where are we going to get it? And then I think the disciples probably join in or come over at some point and they ask as well. So I think both Mark and John are telling the truth, just a matter of putting them together. Now back to John chapter 6, verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. John is so gracious to give us insight here. When Jesus asked the question to Philip, he is not asking because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking to reveal the heart of Philip. God often does this. 
In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what does he say? Adam, where are you? Was God at a loss for where he was? Where, where's Adam, guys? Ugh, Rhino, Mr. Rhino, do you know where he went? I just can't seem to find him. No, he's calling for Adam and he's asking for his heart to be revealed. Where are you? What's going on? The same thing here with Jesus, Philip. When he asked him this, he's asking this to test him. And Philip's answer is going to reveal what's going on in his heart about Jesus. What does he really think about Jesus at this point? Remember, Philip, what has he seen? Probably water into wine. He's seen the paralytic 38 years, his legs fixed. Not to mention, there's probably a bunch of other miracles he saw. The answer is really easy. From where, Philip? What should he have said? From you, Lord. That's an easy one. Ask me another one. From you, Jesus. Verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Philip bypasses Jesus, the answer, and he's gonna do some math here. And he's like, you know what? 200 denarii is not enough for everyone to get a little bit. One denarii was a day's wages. 200 denarii was 200 days wages. That's about eight months. It's about 1,600 hours worth of work. Let's put that into some perspective. Last year in San Diego, according to one website, which I don't remember, the average income was $109,000 in San Diego. Eight months wages of $109,000 is about $71,000. So in essence, it's like this. Philip said, Jesus, $71,000 is not enough to give even these people a little bit. That's a lot of money. Now my number could be super inflated, which it probably is. Mark Strauss, when he comments on the gospel of Mark on the same story, he gives a number of around 10,000. So whatever it is, it's a lot of money. Jesus, a lot of money is not gonna be able to do what we needed to do here. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Andrew, which is Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Andrew steps up and he tells them what they do have, or at least what this boy has. Five barley loaves. That's poor man's bread. That's the rough grain, not the preferred grain. It's all we got. Some poor man's bread and some fish. Could be small fish. It could be the pickled fish that kind of goes on the side of a meal. Anyway, it's kind of sad, but it's sad. I mean, and he asks the question, Andrew does the, the, the math too, the logical math. What is this for so many? It's not going to work, which is indicating to us what? What is about to happen next is going to be something very miraculous. There's nothing else there. It's desolate. Jesus is not hiding a wagon of food anywhere. There's no stores. The nearest city is, is miles away. There's nothing there that they could pull from and pull a prank on anyone. Now, this is interesting. We've actually seen this scenario before. This is not the first time. And it's important that we see where this first happen because when Jesus does it, then it tells you what's going on. So go with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 42. It says this, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Man of God, he's gonna have 20 loaves of bread. And Elisha said to him, give to the men that they may eat. But here's what the man of God says. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, 
Give to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they ate and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. When it comes to multiplying food or taking a little bit and extending and creating more, God did this in the Old Testament. This is an original act of God the Father himself. The man of God did the math. Logically, this isn't going to work. 20 loaves, I think it's kind of embarrassing. I don't want to put it before 100 people. They're like, dude, bro, you didn't give me enough. Sorry about that. But he did it. By faith, the Lord commanded. And what did the Lord do? They ate and they had some left over. We've already seen this. Moses also talks about this in Numbers 11, verse 13. Where can I get meat to feed all these people? Remember, there's like 2 million people that came out of the Exodus. You'd be asking the same thing. God, where can I get $2 million worth of meat, pounds people worth of meat? That's a lot. But God fed them. He took care of them. Now go back with me to John chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. We're finally told how big the crowd was. This is great. So Jesus had them sit down. They sit down in green grass, which indicates to us it's like March or April. The rains have come, but not yet that scorching summer sun. If you've ever driven over to East County over the 52, if you drive around January, February, it's a really nice drive. The hills are green. You think you're in Scotland. But we know, for those of us who go to East County every day, when the summer comes, it won't look like that anymore. It's brown, it's dirty, it's dusty. When it's green, you're like, why, does it, why don't we just build houses out here? This is so nice. And then when it's not, you're like, well, that's why, because it's just dirty and dusty. <laughs> so it's March or April. Jesus has them sit down. John tells us there's about 5,000. Mark tells us this. They sat down in groups of 150s. How do they pull that off? I don't know. But I think that made it easier to count. Just a thought. Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, 21, that there were actually not just men there. This is just the men, 5,000. There were actually women and children. So now we got to do the numbers. Now we're at 10,000, possibly 15 or 20,000 people. That's a small city. Some states, it might be a big city. Kind of a weird statistic, but I looked it up. How many cities in the U.S. are under 20,000 people? There's like 167,000. There's some crazy number, 16,000 towns. Right? This, this, is a, this is a lot. Jesus is about to feed miraculously an entire city. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when, it, when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. Jesus takes the loaves, and he's going to... Thank God. When he does this, the prayer was probably a, a, a formal Jewish prayer that sounded something like this. Blessed are you, Yahweh our God, King of the universe, who brings forth food from the earth. What a great prayer. D.A. Carson points out he blessed God, not the food. And I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting. Sometimes we bless this food to our bodies, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But I love how the emphasis, and this is what I want to point out, his emphasis was bless God who does provide this, who does put the nutrients in the food. Think if God stopped bringing forth food from the earth, we'd all be gone. But by his grace, he continues to do that. The point though here in the verse is this, they ate as much as they wanted. Jesus took a poor man's meal and he made it into a feast 
for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. You see, Jesus not only meets our needs, he exceeds our needs. And we will see that here shortly. What did Jesus show us when he did this? He showed from where? The answer to the question, where will we find enough bread and food to do this? The answer is from Jesus. And when he does this, he shows his glory as the son of God who does the works of the father going back to second Kings. That's the point. Jesus's works are God's works. And by knowing that, what do you do? You put your faith in him because he's the savior of the world. And there's no one else that can save us but the one who does the very works of the father, who raises the dead, who will judge us in the end times. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Jesus sends them out to pick up the rest. Two things we learn. One, there's a lot more left over at the end than there was at the beginning. It truly was a miracle. Jesus truly multiplied. He truly created more than was there at the beginning. Secondly, we learn there's 12 baskets. This is interesting. There were 12 disciples. Was it a message to them? There's also 12 tribes of Israel. Was this a further message to them? I like to think so. I like to think Jesus is saying this. You see those 12 baskets left over? I can provide not only for you and the city, I can provide for the whole country and nation of Israel. I can provide for everybody. Jesus not only meets our needs, he exceeds our needs. When we ask the question from where, the answer is always the same. It's from you, Lord. It's from you. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. They recognized he did something crazy because there was nowhere he could have pulled that out of a hat. No hats, no hats big enough around. This is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18. Moses said a guy would come, he would be a prophet. God would put his words in his mouth and you must listen to him. This prophet delivered us from Egypt. There's another prophet. He must be the one who will deliver us from Rome. So verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, what? Jesus withdrew again to the mountainside by himself. Remember I told you it's Passover time. They're pumped up, proud to be an Israelite. This is the prophet. Guys, now's the time to make our move. We don't care if he's ready. We are. Let's go get him. Let's put a crown and let's go take down Rome because we're tired of all this Rome government stuff in our lives. Come on, Jesus, it's time. Jesus perceived this. He knew what was in a man. And he's gonna send his disciples away, get across the lake, to get away from them, I don't know, so they don't plant bad ideas in their heads, I don't know, but the disciples are gone. Jesus takes care of them and he's gonna go by himself and be solitary on a mountain during this time. Jesus will not be man's king in man's way and in man's timing. This is something good for us to learn because we want him to be our king slash genie. When we want him to be our king slash genie in our time and in our way, but he will not be manipulated by man. He only submits to the will of the Father and he is not swayed by the will of man. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing to rejoice in. If we gave everything our kids wanted, what would happen? They would be basket cases to say the least, right? They need authoritative figures who can teach them what is true and help them walk in it. We need that too. 
We need a king who can truly rule us. And that's what Jesus is. And that's what he does for us. Today, as we looked at these, these first 15 verses so far, we see that Jesus not only meets our needs, he exceeds our needs. Where are we going to get our needs met as individuals? Where are we going to get our needs met as the church? Where are the, the, the needs of the lost going to get met? We know the answer. From who? From where? It's always the same answer. And it's not just the physical needs I'm talking about. We're talking spiritual needs as well. That part will come next week when we get to the rest of John 6 at the end of it, when Jesus talks about himself being the bread of life. You see, they like this part, the physical needs part, but they miss the spiritual needs. And I don't want anyone to miss that part. So you've got to come back next week, all right? Online something. Jesus meets and he exceeds our needs. We know how to answer the question from where will my physical and spiritual needs be met? Now, verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come with them. So Jesus sent them on. It is now dark. The other gospels tell us it's the fourth watch. It's three o'clock in the morning and they're crossing the lake. Jesus is not with them. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. There's a picture on your screen. You should be able to see it. And it's surrounded by mountains. So it's like this little like hole, like a kid got to the beach and dug it out with a shovel kind of a thing. Well, there was wind that would blow from the southeast on the tablelands. And the wind would blow, a gust of wind. It would come, it would hit the warm air above the Sea of Galilee, and it would create what we call a squall. A squall is this violent burst of air that makes the water now treacherous. The water now is acting up. When we were kids in the pool, we'd get boogie boards and we'd do this in the pool. Do you remember that? And you could make the waters nuts. And then you would run and you'd throw your surfboard boogie board and you'd try to surf the pool. Did no one else do that? <laughs> so it's treacherous. It's scary. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, some people want to explain this away and say this. Well, Jesus was on the shore, and they're hugging the shoreline in their boat, and it freaked them out. It's like, well, there's two issues with that. One, why would a group of guys in a boat be scared about one guy on the shore who's just walking there with no perceived weapon? And the second issue is that in the other gospels, they put it in the middle of the lake. They tell us that. They're in the middle of the lake. So when Jesus is walking on the water, he is literally in the middle of the lake. He would have had to walk miles or transport himself somehow fast. And he is now walking on water that is uneven next to a boat of a guy screaming out, Mark tell us, because they thought he was a ghost. I'd be scared too. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. He identifies himself, it's me guys, calm down, it's okay. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There seems to be another miracle here. Remember, they're in the middle of the lake, he gets in the boat and all of a sudden they're at shore. John seems to imply that that entire boat was transported through time and air, just, just boom, and they're there. It's crazy to think. So either Jesus walked miles next to them to get to the edge and then got in, 
or there's another perceived miracle, which I think that's what John is intending here. Now, before we interpret this passage, go to Job chapter 9, verse 8. I've got to show you something. Job is just before Psalms. Job chapter 9, verse 8. Job speaking of God and the attributes of him, he'll say this in verse eight, God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Who walks on the water in the Old Testament? Who tramples the waves of the sea in the Old Testament? If I'm getting this right, this is a picture of God here doing this. So when we read these miracles of bread being multiplied, of Jesus walking on water, ultimately, what is it telling us? This is truly the son of God who does the works of the father. He meets our needs, he exceeds our needs, and he, and he exceeds our abilities to do what we can't do, and that is save us from our sins and actually take care of us in this life. God created the world, and he works within it, but he's not confined by his creation. Water, he can walk on it. Food, he can create it, he can multiply it. Seas, he can part them and, and bring millions of people through it on dry ground. Rocks, he can open them and bring water in the middle of the desert out of nowhere and feed millions of people. Praise God that his, need, his abilities exceed ours. That is the type of God and savior that we need. And that is exactly what John shows to us. This is the guy. And I can't help but wanna just preach the gospel until we're all on our knees saying, save me, Lord, save me. And so today I call you to the gospel. What is the gospel? It is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. What has he done for you? What you could not. He paid for your sins. Because Jesus took your place on the cross and then he died the death and sealed that, rose from the dead victorious. God accepted that by receiving him from the dead. And now for those who look to Jesus and say, I can't. I cannot, and you trust in him as savior of your sins, as Lord is your life. What happens is he gives you his righteousness. He puts in a sense, a, a, a robe on you. And when God looks at you, he sees a righteous, now ad adopted child of God. You do not ever stand before God and say, God, I did this. Aren't you proud of me? God, I did this. Aren't you impressed? No, we established that last week. Whatever you do, God enabled you to do it. You don't do good works on your own. Jesus tells us in John 15, Apart from me, you can do nothing, not some things, nothing. When you stand before God, you want to be wearing the righteous robes of Jesus. How do I get that? By recognizing you have sinned. God is displeased with your sin and you cry out to him, save me, forgive me of my sins, I am yours. And when you do that, you are born again. You are filled with his spirit and God rescues you from the kingdom of darkness and brings you into the kingdom of light. Not everyone in here is a believer, I would venture to probably say, and so I call you to the gospel, not to raise your hand, not to tell me, to tell God, I need you, save me. I believe he's the son of God. And if you don't, you're gonna have to explain away what he did here. You can't, because the eyewitnesses show us this is true and they gave their lives for it. Jesus is the savior that you need. Call upon him today and you will be saved. Amen.